This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, this is episode number 18. So let's move right along with a show that is different from other shows available around the Internet. Um, There are shows that are giants in their promises, but they are pygmies in their performances. There are shows that like trotting out trite little homilies, like uh, some sort of refugees from the Reader's Digest. But no, no. The Rabbi Daniel Appen Show replaces life's perplexing predicaments and puzzling paradoxes with its permanent principles. And that is what I solemnly dedicate this show to doing. Now, a lot of people are puzzled by a word that keeps on cropping up. Uh, you can barely open the, the, the pages of a newspaper, certainly a financial newspaper, without encountering the word inflation. What is inflation? Well, I think everybody knows inflation is when prices sort of go up. And uh, they rise, and uh, it means that uh, your savings lose value. It means that uh, if you don't have your resources in an investment whose return at least equals the inflationary rate, you're losing money. And worse than that, inflation not only erodes the buying power of the money you've got, but it actually increases the amount of money you pay in taxation. This is one of the reasons that governments are not nearly as opposed to inflation as you would gather from their rhetoric. They speak out against inflation, but they don't mind inflation one little bit. And the reason is because as uh, prices go up, well, then uh, in general – pay and wages go up as well. What that does is nudges everybody into higher tax brackets. And since the United States and uh, most Western countries practice a progressive tax system, and by the way, don't be misled by the term progressive. Uh, Progressive sounds good. It sounds positive. I mean, after all, don't you want to progress? But uh, in in actuality, progressive is just a euphemistic term uh, for socialism and uh, tendencies leading towards a socialistic economic environment. And uh, taxation uh, follows uh, Marx's uh, most uh, 
uh, specific and diligent advice on how taxation should work, and that is that uh, the higher you are up in the income categories, the higher rate you should pay. Now, there's no real reason for that at all. It's, it's fundamentally unfair and unjust. Uh, the tax rate should be the same for everybody. But uh, no, the progressive tax system ensures that whereas you might pay, shall we say, 30% if your earnings are at a certain figure, if your earnings go up, well, now you're going to be paying 40%, and if they go up more, maybe 50%. And so what inflation does is nudge you ever higher up that progressive scale so that the actual rate at which you're paying in income tax begins to, to rise in, in, in a very destructive manner, uh, approaching quickly confiscatory rates. And so uh, inflation is important to understand because uh, when politicians tell us the cause of inflation, they uh, usu usually omit the main cause, which, of course, is the government itself. Let me explain precisely what I mean. Uh, in order to uh, explain this, I have to lay out for you a scenario. Now, I would ordinarily call it a thought experiment, but as a matter of fact, uh, it's actually even better than a thought experiment. I'll tell you what it is. Uh, in reality, I am going to give you a fantastic idea for a business you can start anywhere any time. What is it? Okay, so how about I walk you through the steps? This is, is what you need to do. What you do is um, go ahead and uh, design or, or go onto the web and find a freelance designer who will design you some uh, monopoly money. But except, don't call it monopoly money. Uh, you know, if, if your name is Smith, then call it Smith Dollars. If I were to do it, I'd call it Lappin Dollars. And, uh, and you have a, a capable artist draw up uh, this, the, these bills in one, five, ten, fifty, hundred, five hundred dollar denominator, even a thousand dollar denominations is useful. And then go ahead and uh, print up a whole bunch of it and uh, put it in your safe. Now, what you do is you uh, go out and you start selling. Now, if you haven't yet um, learned how to sell, I strongly recommend that you do because almost anything you do involves selling unless, unless you are uh, a justice on the United States Supreme Court or a professor at an American university at which you have tenure, means they can never fire you. Uh, if, if you're not in either of those situations, you probably do need to be selling, whether it's selling people ideas. Maybe you're in the persuasion business in one way or another, uh, but or you might actually be selling. And I, I think the profession of selling, I should just say in passing, is a wonderful, wonderful profession because you can always get a job, always, no matter what, because you alone – are able to say to a potential employer, I won't cost you anything, I'll make you money. And so uh, knowing about selling, knowing how to sell, 
very important, and uh, if you're not into that yet, I want to recommend that you get hold of my book called Thou Shall Prosper, okay? Thou Shall Prosper, the Ten Commandments for Making Money, and it will uh, equip you, it will totally change your outlook on sales and equip you to be effective at the skill, the great business skill of selling. I, I tell you all of that because what you now need to do in, uh, in this fantastic new business that I'm introducing you to is um, go out and um, talk to a few dentists. And if the pitch to each one is the same thing, which is that uh, for $200, I will put you in my Smith uh, Barter Club directory. And not only that, but I'll actually give you $200 of Smith dollars or Lappin dollars or uh, uh, whatever dollars you want to call it. And it's, it's really not a terribly hard pitch, is it? Um, the dentist says, what can I do with the dollars? You say, well, I'm going to be signing up a whole lot of people, and uh, when the directory is published, anyone in that directory will accept your Smith dollars for payment. And they're at a par with U.S. dollars. That's why you're going to give me $200. I s exchange it for Smith dollars or Barter Club dollars. And uh, for free, you get a full listing in my Smith Barter Club directory. It's not a particularly hard sell. And why don't you do the same with uh, the local uh, vitamin and nutrition store? And do the same with the local handyman or, or carpenter service, find a plumber. And so it is, work your way around your community and go ahead and get uh, representatives of, of almost every business and trade provider or goods into your directory. Uh, now, what do you got at this point? I'll tell you in just a moment. Don't go away. Coming back, you will find out exactly what you've got. Uh, before that, you'll also find out that my website is www.rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, head over there because you'll be able to read about my book, Thou Shall Prosper, which if you haven't read yet, uh, you probably do need to because if you're not doing as well as you'd like to be doing, I don't care what your field is, it may well be because you don't know how to sell. You don't know how to change people's minds. You don't know how to expose people to new thoughts. All of that in the Thou Shall Prosper, which you can read about at my website, youneedarabbi.com. Uh, we'll be back in a moment, and I'll tell you what you've got so far in your new Barter Club business. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I'm getting ready now to launch for you a thunderbolt of dazzling audacity. A business you can start absolutely anywhere. Uh, whatever your name is, Smith, it's the Smith Barter Club. Jones, Jones Barter Club. Winterbottom, it's the Winterbottom Barter Club. 
and uh, you've just gone around and uh, you have now created a directory which you now go and print. Now, what's happened is you uh, went around and you got hold of a hundred uh, different trades and suppliers. You found uh, bookkeepers and accountants. You found a, a lawyer, but people in your community. Uh, you found uh, a plumber, you found an auto repair guy, you found an air conditioning guy, and uh, you got a hundred of them to agree to give you $200 to be listed in your Smith Barter Club directory, uh, and in exchange to also receive, on par, $200 of Barter Club currency. So now, um, if one of them needs his air conditioner repaired or his uh, filters replaced, he just calls somebody in the Barter Club, pays him with the Barter Club dollars you gave him, and uh, he's literally getting his his listing for free. It's marvelous. Um, there's, there's no way people will turn this down. It's, a, it's an absolute natural. Now, you've got 100 times $200. That's $20,000. I think you can safely uh, assume that you'll print a few thousand copies um, of your uh, uh, of your Barter Club directory for about two thousand dollars. So right now you've got a profit of eighteen thousand dollars right there. Um, did you make eighteen thousand dollars last month? Um, if you did, congratulations, well done. And uh, having if you would have done this in your spare time you'd have had an extra $18,000. Now, you can continue expanding uh, the organization the following month and uh, building it out. No reason why you can't do that. But now I want to explain to you why this concept is not being practiced each and everywhere around the country in every town. Why aren't there millions of these? I mean, it's such a great business. I'm sure you're, I mean, you've been probably nodding, right? And you've been saying, yeah, yeah, this is a good thing. I can do that. And you could. You're absolutely right. And no, there is no uh, law against it. There is no uh, regulatory uh, obstructions. There are no high barriers to entry in this particular business. No. No, you can just go right ahead and do it. Uh, now, needless to say, there are tax issues which uh, is not really the business of the owner of the barter club, but uh, each and every participant has to decide to what extent he's going to declare the income he gets in barter dollars. You see, uh, you know, let's imagine it's just before the summer and the, uh, the, the air conditioning guy is very, very busy, and so he's getting loads and loads of business in, in barter dollars, and um, and so he's got quite a big reserve of them. And so uh, is he – Is he? I mean, th this is like off his books. This doesn't go through his bank account because his bank doesn't accept those pretty colored pieces of paper that you printed. And that is what leads us to the answer of why these are not really as popular as the beauty of the concept would suggest – why it is, why it is that, uh, well, let me put it this way. What is it that goes wrong? And I'll tell you. Here's what goes wrong. Your barter business has been thriving. You've been adding about, uh, you know, I don't know, 50 to 100 people a month. You've uh, spread out into neighboring suburbs and towns. 
Uh, you, might have, you might even have gone into a neighboring state and expanded your, your barter club. And, um, you know, and each, each town has its own variation of, of the directory, and you can even have an online page. And uh, this whole thing is very smooth, works very well. And um, the, the day inevitably comes when you want to buy a car. You decide you want a Dodge vehicle. So you go down to your Dodge dealer, your local Dodge dealer, and uh, you look around, you like the cars, and you say to yourself, all of a sudden, you say, wait a second, two towns over, there is a Dodge dealer who is a member of my barter club. Why would I go to a Dodge dealer who is a stranger? I may as well go to somebody who's part of the barter club. And wait, oh wait, oh beautiful idea. Up in my office is a safe with thousands and thousands of dollars worth of barter club currency that I printed. And I only give out $200 to each person who joins the barter club in exchange for his $200 check in U.S. dollars. And so I've got thousands of dollars there. Hey, and I'm the owner of this club, so why don't I go down and buy a Dodge, and all i got to do is take 40000 of my barter club dollars, and the Dodge dealer who's in my directory will accept that for payment, and I can drive a new Dodge home. It's as simple as that. And you pause for a moment with scruples, and you say, well, wait a second, is this honest? Is this okay? And you say to yourself, well, uh, the, the, barter, the, uh, the Dodge dealer, well, he's getting his $40,000, and he's going to be able to use that with the uh, periodontist and the, uh, and the dentist that his kids need. He's going to be able to use it with the roof repair guy that his house needs, he's going to be able to... So, yes, he'll be able to use those 40000 barter club dollars. No problem. So he's okay. I'm not hurting him. I'm good. It's totally honest. It's my dollars. I printed them. Where is the flaw, my friends? The flaw is that for the first time in the history of your barter club, these are the only barter dollars, all 40,000 of them, that are going into circulation without being underwritten by U.S. dollars. Up till now, for every 200 barter club dollars that went out into circulation, you received 200 U.S. dollars, and that controlled the flow of barter dollars. But now the control has been abandoned and 40,000 barter dollars are now out there. A parallel is why governments hate the idea of a gold standard. And, uh, and there are some very eloquent arguments to be made against having a gold standard, against having the dollar pegged to the price of gold against having gold reserves against every single dollar in circulation. There are arguments that can be made against it. However, 
they pale into insignificance compared to the one big argument that can be made for gold tied to dollars, and that is it stops the government from doing what you just did. You ran the presses, and you printed off 40,000 barter club dollars, and you ran, not walked, you ran down to the Dodge dealer, and you drove your nice new Dodge home again, confident that nobody was hurt. But now what happens? Well, my friends, <laughs> it's not so simple, because what we're going to see is that somebody did get hurt. And again, I uh, recommend that you take a look at uh, not just Thou Shall Prosper, but I have a resource on my website. It's called the Income Abundance Set. There's a lot of information there on audio CDs, stuff that you need to hear again and again that you can hear while you're commuting or while you're exercising. And then there's material in books, in book form that you can read and mark up and, and learn in that way. So uh, go over to rabbidaniellappin.com or else you need a rabbi.com and uh, take a look at the income abundance set. Would you do that? You may just find that it is helpful to use, it has been, to literally hundreds of thousands of other people whose, uh, whose entire financial trajectory has been modified. So um, now, what is it that uh, we're looking at? Well, who has been hurt by your spending the 40,000 barter club dollars? I'll tell you coming right back. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. America WK, with your host, Andrew WK. There are these moments when you are compelled to do things that defy your own logic, that defy your own taste, that defy, defy your own preferences. You wind up doing things that you don't like to do, and yet you like doing them almost because of it. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon, on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, episode 18. Yes, this is the 18th show. And if you have not uh, heard any of the others, uh, you may want to go back and review them. Uh, they do each stand alone, that is true. But at the same time, there is also... A, uh, a vast body of ancient Jewish wisdom that I am building up on as we work our way through all of these, uh, these shows. So uh, here we are, number 18, and uh, we're moving on with segment three of this episode. Uh, you'll remember that what's happened now is that my uh, friendly Dodge dealer, who happens to be a member of my barter club, has just accepted... 40,000 barter club dollars that I printed myself at no cost at all, uh, 10 cents. And uh, he's accepted that in exchange for a uh, beautiful new Dodge SUV, which I happily drove home. And now let's see what happens. Well, 
our Dodge dealer has got 40,000 Barter Club dollars. So uh, the first thing he does is he decides to take his wife on a cruise. He flips through his Latin Barter Club directory, it finds a cruise travel agent, and he uh, heads on over there, talks to them, and they, um, they show him a range of cruises, and uh, some of them are uh, $5,000, some are 6000 some are eight, And he says, because he, he knows that uh, they will accept Barter Club dollars as well, he says, what's your best one? Oh, they say, the best one is this one for 10000 And he peels off 10 $1,000 Barter Club dollars, hands them to the travel agent. He takes them very happily, and our Dodge dealer is booked on a cruise. <coughs> Pardon. The next thing is that uh, he, um, his daughter needs to get some orthodontic work done. And so he calls up the orthodontist that is in the Barter Club directory, introduces himself, and asks for an appointment uh, for his daughter. And the orthodontist says, well, to tell you the truth, we uh, are absolutely full for the next six weeks. We, uh, we can take you in about six weeks' time. And he says, tell you what, uh, how about you can add an extra $500 on my bill if you can see her next week? Orthodontist says, sure. <laughs> at that, uh, at, at that, with that premium, happy to juggle the calendar book and maybe cancel another patient, move them later. Yeah, happy. And uh, now, don't forget, the travel agent has 10,000 Barter Club dollars, and now the orthodontist has an extra 500 Barter Club dollars. And so it goes. Our Dodge dealer is spreading the wealth around with joyous abandon. And um, what happens now is that we find quite quickly that as people in the Barter Club start heading out to get things, so for instance, uh, the next person that calls the orthodontist and wants an appointment, the orthodontist says, well, I'll tell you, we've got a new system we just thought of because something another patient helped us realize, and that is that if you want an appointment in the next month, we're going to tack on a premium of $200. If you want an appointment in the next six weeks, it'll be 100 If you want it in the next eight weeks, it'll be an extra 50 If you don't want to pay anything extra, we'll plug you in after that. And, um, and so people effectively realize that the cost of the orthodontics has gone up. And um, how's about uh, the, the next person that, that comes to have their, uh, their roof repaired? Well, it turns out that the orthodontist used the roof repairer, happily paid him in Barter Club dollars, and, the, um, and, and several other people did as well. And so the, there are so many Barter Club dollars coming at the roof repair guy, he raises his prices. And what he does is, because he also has non-Barter Club business, like any business professional, he, he has a fairly good idea of the balance of his business. And so pretty soon, he starts telling customers, if you are a Barter Club customer, the job will cost $500. If you are paying in U.S. dollars, it'll be $400. Why is he doing that? Because he senses 
that there are more barter club dollars around than U.S. dollars around, and the market will bear a higher price. Why is all this true? Well, because I went and put $40,000 into the system without any kind of control, without any kind of value warranty. And so now, there are all, these, there are all of these uh, uh, barter club dollars in circulation, and people are spending them with merry abandon, and people on the selling side are saying, wait a second, the market will bear a higher price. How much of a higher price? Exactly the extent to which I inflated the value by pumping those $40,000 into the system. This, my friends, is why the barter club game doesn't work. Oh, it works for a while. But invariably, the owner succumbs. Invariably, the owner can't help himself but indulge the get-something-for-nothing syndrome, which is so powerful and so pervasive. People so enjoy that idea of getting something for nothing. It drives the entire lottery industry. Um, it drives the sale uh, concept. You know, get it on sale. Only eight more hours. Get it now. Well, that's, that's, that's something for nothing. And, uh, and this is one of the reasons that uh, when you find something that somebody has lost, even though you can easily identify the owner, your initial thrill is keeping it. I'm going to keep it. Or when a store gives you the wrong change back and you've got an extra $10 in your hands as you walk out of the store, you count it up, and now you've got to turn around and walk back and hand the dollar $10 back. And there's a part of you that just finds that very hard because we human beings love something for nothing. And that's, w that's what happens. Barter club owners, loving something for nothing, find it irresistible. And in so doing, they eventually kill the golden goose. They kill the goose that lays the golden eggs and uh, destroy the entire barter club because finally they just inflate those dollars so much that they're simply not worth anything. And then people stop signing on to the, the barter club the following year to be included in the directory. They say, forget it. It's not worth it. Because wherever I go to spend barter club dollars, uh, the price is higher than if I'd spend U.S. dollars. And they realize what's happening. The system fails every single time. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, I'll be different. This is such a great business. I'll be different. And God bless you. I, I, I hope you are different, and I hope you are able to resist it. The only thing I'll tell you is that uh, when you do and when you have, do please let me know. Please. I want you to let me know. And here's how to do it. Go to my website at uh, youneedarabbi.com, youneedarabbi.com, or rabbidaniellappin.com, same thing. And uh, there's a Contact Us tab. Write me a letter. You can write about anything at all. You can ask a question or tell me about the show or anything at all. But if you have started a barter club successfully and you have run it for a while and you have not yielded to the desperate urge to get something for nothing and start buying stuff 
with the barter dollars that you, the barter club dollars that you print. I want you to tell me about that because um, I've got to tell you that I have been instrumental in the launching of three of these over the last couple of decades uh, in, in the same way as, as I've spoken about it here to you by explaining it to people. And I'm aware of three that started and uh, not a single one, not a single one of them resisted the temptation. The, all three floundered and eventually folded for exactly this reason. How, what does this have to do with government? <laughs> I'm sure you can already begin to see it, but I'll spell it out in horrifying, dreadful, torturous detail as soon as we get back in just a moment. Don't go away. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Now, the cops are the problem, but the people making the policies and the people in charge, by the way, and the person in charge for seven years now, Barack Obama, that's not part of the problem. That's There's no issue there. They want this huge government, and they seem to fail to recognize that government's power largely comes from its police power, its force, its monopoly on force. That's what the government has. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Back, continuing with episode 18 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, uh, segment number four, as we uh, examine, well, let me put it this way. It is almost inevitably a rule that civilizations die from suicide, not murder. Almost invariably, uh, the Roman Empire, it didn't die because it was invaded and killed by outsiders. It just lost its internal vitality. By the way, immigration and inflation were <laughs> the main factors there. Uh, the British Empire and uh, what is happening with the United States of America now, it's not an outside enemy. It is eroding from the inside. And one of the very powerful weapons causing the suicide of the West um, is inflation. Because you see, government is in exactly the same position as you were with your barter club when you suddenly realized that you were able to buy a brand new Dodge SUV without paying a penny for it. Something for nothing. Wonderful. Governments are in the same position. What do I mean? Well, governments are not a detached entity. It's not a kind of creature. It's made up of people. And it's people who sit in committees and on boards and on councils. And there it is from whether you're talking about your local school district or a county or a town or a state or, yes, even the federal government. It's groups of people who sit around a table discussing how to improve things and because, after all, they are engaged in what they love to think of as public service. I wish we would stop talking about politicians 
as people who devote their life to public service. I wish we'd stop doing that. What do you mean public service? You're getting paid pretty darn well for it. There are very few elected positions in the country today that do not pay pretty well and that have pretty nice retirement perks. And um, in exchange for what? Well, that's the question, for what? What are we getting? Well, they sit around a table and uh, engage in a lot of high-minded talk. But don't forget, they have to justify their existence. And look, I'm, I'm sorry if you think I'm being needlessly cynical about this, but uh, I think it is much more important that I tell you the truth than that I massage you with warm butter and leave you feeling great. I know this doesn't leave us feeling great, but, uh, but it is the truth. And, um, and whether you are talking about people who are sitting at a county level, a town, a township, a, a, a county, a city, a state, wherever it is, it's always the same. As it is in the House of Representatives and in the United States Senate, people are sitting and they have to justify their presence there. So nobody says, you know what, I actually think we've got enough laws on the books right now. Why don't we actually start devoting the next few days, weeks, months, or years to going through all the laws on the books? And um, what we'll do is uh, we'll examine the ones that should have been sunsetted. We'll examine and pull out ones that should no longer apply. See, right now, right now, the... Uh, bureaucracies of the United States involve hundreds of thousands of pages of rules and regulations. It is absolutely impossible for a United States citizen to be totally in compliance with everything all the time. This is one of the reasons that uh, in Beverly Hills, I was told by a councilman in Beverly Hills, that Beverly Hills, California, that every restaurant in the city knows that it should be pretty serious about giving free meals to politicians because there's not a single restaurant that couldn't be closed down overnight. It's not possible to be fully in compliance. And the number of pages of regulations adds gets added to by 3% every month, I think. I believe. It's, it's pretty scary. And, um, and so nobody... Nobody who's elected does that. Nobody says we've got enough laws. They are looking to pass laws so they can tell the people who pay their salaries and who voted them into office, we passed this law and I passed this law and I wrote this law and I wrote that law. And all of these laws always involve spending money. you know. And if it's not a law, then it's spending money directly. Um, just take a look at the doings of the council of the town you live in. And you will see that they simply cannot bear the thought of money sitting in the bank. They spend it right away. Why? Because they know that just like you with your barter club, there's always more where that came from. All they got to do is put pass a bill for a special bond or raise a tax here or a, a little bit of a tax there, and, and the money flows back. And the way it works is that they inflict the pain. Very, it's a low level of pain on, on, on a lot of people, and they end up with a lot of money to spend, and they go ahead and they spend it. 
And uh, one of the problems is, what do they do about the fact that every now and then people start muttering about the, the taxes being too high? Now, they know that they just have to wait a bit, and, uh, and the United States has become a very docile uh, group of citizens. We put up with almost anything, and uh, you can add on another, you know, uh, half a percent to a, to a tax or, a, uh, or a, a charge. People pay it. People pay it. And then uh, two months later, it's another one. Sometimes they pass these uh, taxes that kick in you know, a year and then two years and then three years down the road. And all of that happens without you even being aware of it. There's no more talk anymore. It's all happening. They love that kind of thing because it doesn't need citizen agreement in any way whatsoever. And so what happens is that uh, with all of the spending, at some point, if there is a, a concern that the, the time might be a little tax-sensitive or people are a bit tax-sensitive, there's always another alternative. If you're the federal government, you just turn on the printing press and create more money. That's it. That's all you have to do, and that's exactly what they do do. The money flows out into the economy, and guess what? It becomes pretty evident to everybody that money's worth a little bit less. And so uh, the cost of goods and services goes up, uh, salaries and pay has to go up to keep pace, but more importantly, your tax bracket goes up. There's a term for this. They call it bracket creep, and that is that as time goes by, you find you're moving into higher and higher tax brackets, and you say to yourself, well, it's all right. I'm getting older. I'm making more money. Of course, I'm moving into a higher tax bracket. Uh, a large part of that bracket creep is not that you're making more money, but it is inflation that's really causing it. And so you have to understand that um, the, the value of what you own is being eroded. And when inflation is at work, frankly, the best thing to do is borrow money because you will pay it back with eroded dollars. You'll pay it back with dollars that cost less. And, um, and the important thing I want you to be aware of is that Inflation is not a mathematical problem. It's a moral problem. Inflation is not an economic problem. It's a moral problem. Uh, it is a government made up of people without integrity. It's bureaucrats without integrity. It's officials without integrity. It's elected representatives without integrity who are happy to inflate the currency price you pay is that it turns out to be a frighteningly hidden tax, one that can really cause considerable harm to your welfare. My website, youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, I'd like you to go along, take a look at the income abundance set, would you? Because if your finances have not been the way you'd like them to be, if your earning power is not what you'd like it to be, you'd be amazed how much you could actually do about that, regardless of whether you're in business actually or, or whether you're in a job, or perhaps you're unemployed. There's a right way to move forward from that situation. All of that in the income abundance set at rabbidaniellappin.com. 
That would be me, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. We have to abandon our intervention in this civil war. This changes everything. We cannot possibly take the chance of injuring or killing an American soldier. Not under Obama's watch. God help us. Think of what the great Obama would do if any of his soldiers were hurt. Exactly. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome, everybody, and you are listening to the 18th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, We're halfway through, and uh, we're starting um, segment number five in today's show. And uh, I want to entitle this segment, Truths That Just Ain't So, Part One. Truths that just ain't so. Uh, One of the truths that just ain't so is that uh, Richard Nixon was this horrible, terrible, worst American president we've ever had. And indeed, uh, throughout the the liberal intelligentsia, throughout academia and left-wing politics, uh, you will find that uh, this is the view, that that Nixon was this this terrible – well, look, uh, it just isn't true. First of all, we've had considerably worse presidents since then, number one. But number two, in and of his own right, he was far from the worst president. If anything, uh, the Richard Nixon presidency serves to uh, teach us how devastatingly effective and destructive the uh, liberal media can be. Uh, Nixon was essentially destroyed by the media. The fact is that uh, when he resigned in August 1974, he didn't really have to. Uh, He resigned because the Republican Party, his own party, came to him one night at the White House and said, you you don't have our support anymore. That's all. And this was a... uh, a shattering, a shattering moment, which which led to a shattering period in the time of the country. But the idea that uh, that he was not a great president is simply not true. First of all, in terms of understanding uh, international politics, in terms of sort of really knowing how how power works, uh, I can't stress how much more he knows than than almost anybody that we've had since then, other than Ronald Reagan. Uh, it's, it's, really, it's worthwhile also, by the way, taking a look at a book he wrote, um, Victory Without War, 1999, Victory Without War. And uh, it was Richard Nixon sort of looking forward. Uh, you take a look at the way he conducted himself after his resignation, and I, I, I think you see a great man. But uh, the, the notion that Kennedy was a sort of superior um, uh, man, a superior pre- is, is completely ridiculous. Um, look, uh, when Kennedy uh, beat Nixon in that 1960 election, that was the one of the most corrupt elections of modern times. Uh, the Democratic machine played 
all its grubby cards, said Paul Johnson, the historian, to get Kennedy elected at all. He won by a whisker in circumstances which will always make the validity of that election very dubious. And look, it says a lot for Richard Nixon's patriotism and middle-class decorum uh, that he refused to challenge the results, right? This, this, was, this was not uh, the kind of behavior we've, we've seen later. Uh, Richard Nixon, in the interests of the country, accepted the results. And um, I'll tell you something that Harold Macmillan said. Harold Macmillan was the British prime minister. When Kennedy was elected, Harold Macmillan said, it's rather like watching the Borgia brothers take over a respectable North Italian town. And if you, if you take a look, and the more and more we know about the Kennedy family as the generations go by, <coughs> uh, the more apt that comparison seems, says historian Paul Johnson. Um, the, um, the, here's the, one of the most outrageous statements Kennedy ever made. Uh, after the 1960 election, when Kennedy really stole it from Nixon, uh, Kennedy contemptuously summed it up by saying about Nixon, he said, he went out like he came in with absolutely no class. Well, um, <laughs> for uh, Kennedy to say Nixon had no class, when Kennedy was the, the guy who had an unscrupulous father who amassed vast wealth in illegal enterprise, as you know, uh, a lot of um, bootlegging, um, so that his indulged and conscienceless offspring could buy their way into office and power. And that's really what happened because of Joe Kennedy's unscrupulous evil. That was a horrible man. He, he arranged for his daughter to have a lobotomy because he didn't want her to embarrass the rest of the family. It was unbelievable. And uh, and that's really what happened. I mean, the reason that, that uh, John F. Kennedy is there simply because his dad bought it and, and made it happen. Uh, Ted Kennedy, all those years in the Senate, all the destructiveness, including, by the way, the 1965 Immigration Reform Act, which uh, we are now only starting to reap the whirlwind from, uh, all of that brought about by the Kennedys. Uh, Harold, uh, but Richard Nixon, classless? I don't think so. Uh, raised a Methodist, became a, uh, parents, I think, became Quakers. Uh, very middle class, which was part of, by the way, what the left wing, I was the, the, the media establishment, they hated that about him, that he was an ordinary middle class guy who, uh, who worked his way up. And yes, he was, he was ambitious. Excuse me, can you name a politician who isn't ambitious? <laughs> what do you think it's all about? They're all beset by a utopian a desire to, uh, to serve the nation. Is that what you think takes people into politics? Of course not. Uh, Richard Nixon was no different in this respect. But um, uh, he was a somebody. He, he had principles. He stuck to them. You know, they, they pull out the fact that uh, he used bad language. In, uh, in the, well, that, that was surprising, and he never used it in public. But um, he did have a sense of propriety. But, but it, in private, yes, he did. Uh, was he anti-Semitic? Well, I don't actually know even... Right, really what that term means. I've, I've got to discuss this with you. The, the term racism and the term anti-Semitism, both of those give me a lot of trouble because 
if they involve the thought police, if they involve penalizing people for things they think, I've got a real problem. If it's for things they do, well, there are already laws. So I'm not exactly sure what anti-Semitism and racism mean, but um, did he resent the fact that Jews uh, not only didn't vote for him but worked actively against him? Jews just picked up on Kennedy, you know, as if Kennedy loved Jewish people or loved Israel. Um, Richard Nixon was upset by that, particularly because um, throughout his, his, his presidency or late in his presidency, something very important happened, which is that um, he, the, the, the Yom Kippur War broke out in October 1973. Syria and Egypt unexpectedly uh, crossed the borders into Israel and began a plan, literally began a campaign to annihilate the Jewish state. This caught the world napping, but more seriously, it also caught Israel napping. It's a, different, it's, a, it's a different topic for another time. What happened there after 67? Why did the 73? Why had Israel's intelligence forces uh, become so ineffective by 73? But they did. And um, uh, there were frightening games. Um, Golda Meir, who was uh, prime minister of Israel, began assembling 20 nuclear weapons and mounting them onto missiles and uh, fighters. They ba for Israel to go to the nuclear option means they were in imminent danger of the end of the state. Basically, it looked as if um, Syria was going to invade from the north, Egypt was invading from the south. They were making very good progress, and uh, pretty soon it was expected Lebanon and Jordan would join in, and uh, it would essentially be a genocide. And um, uh, they had gone through a tremendous amount of ammunition. They were running low. It was, it was, it was truly the worst moment of the, of the Jewish state. And Richard Nixon instructed the United States Air Force to waste no time and to put everything that will fly up in the air in tremendous difficulty. They, uh, within nine hours, C-5s were on their way to Israel. Portugal was the only country the Europeans would have none of it. Obviously, in the north of Africa, the Arab states would have none of it. So C-5s flew down the middle of the Mediterranean after refueling in Portugal and uh, were offloaded in Ben-Gurion Airport, tanks, uh, fighter jets, uh, millions and millions of rounds of uh, ammo, large and small. And uh, that is essentially what saved the Jewish state. Uh, nonetheless, tragically, uh, the secular Jewish uh, population of the United States never ceased their dislike, indeed their hatred of, of Nixon, and celebrated his downfall, in many cases contributing to it as well, and uh, he resigned. This is just a, a sort of very brief overview, and I, I urge you to spend a few minutes at some point because this is one of those times where conventional wisdom is just plain wrong on this, and uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, all I do is urge you to, to delve into it a little bit, and I think you'll see that uh, you would be as thrilled as I would were the presidency, were you to wake up tomorrow and discover that uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon was once again president of the United States. I think you'd be very relieved. Uh, this is a man who understood the world, he understood the Russians, he understood the Chinese, and um, he understood how power is more important than paper. Although, where power exists, paper has a role. Where there is no power, paper is just a laughable joke. And so, in tribute uh, to uh, President Richard Nixon, a far, far greater man than people give him credit for, and uh, one that I think, uh, he, uh, one whose reputation 
uh, will continue to be rebuilt and rehabilitated, and uh, history, I am sure, will look back on him as, indeed, yes, one of America's great presidents. Uh, shortcomings on a personal level, he was, he was hard to get along with, he wasn't good at small talk, all the things that win you friends on, in Washington, D.C. and in New York, Richard Nixon wasn't good at. But uh, the substantive things that mattered to you and me, well, he was. And so among the thing, the truths that uh, just ain't so, uh, Richard, President Richard Nixon, yes, uh, he actually was a great president. Back with you in just a moment as I tell you about yet another truth that just ain't so. This one is all about the French Revolution. <laughs> Shocking. I, I can't tell you the sort of things I was taught as a boy at school. Don't go away. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Don't miss Pat and Stu. It's like, I know. Don't worry about it. I got it. All right, Think I got it. it. Think about Think it. Think about it. Spoon. Everything's <laughs> <laughs> just the forcefulness of his voice makes him right. Yeah. And he does have a big, ballsy voice, so he just he just says it loudly and deeply and assumes that everyone's going to be like, oh, wow, he must know. Wow, yeah. He must Did know. you hear how he said that? Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And one of the things that we need to understand about how the world really works is that um, there are a lot of truths out there that just ain't so. Uh, there are conventional wisdoms that people adhere to, uh, that people believe, that people take so much for granted that if you question them in a social setting, you're turned into a pariah. Now, I went to a, well, <laughs> I went to a number of uh, <clears throat> schools during my elementary, middle school, and high school experiences, and I must confess that uh, more than one school asked my parents to move me elsewhere, <clears throat> politely saying that uh, the school was short of room, but um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's pretty clear that, uh, that I was not a major asset to any school that I attended during those years. <clears throat> Pardon me. I, didn't, I don't think I really uh, started becoming civilized until after high school, but uh, <laughs> probably well after high school. But um, that's neither here nor there. What's important is that I did attend religious Jewish schools, and um, in spite of that, I mean, I'm horrified. I was taught so much wrong about the French Revolution. I was told things that just weren't true. Truths, that ain't so. You see, I was taught that the French Revolution was this wonderful thing. This great spirit of brotherhood rising up and overwhelming the evil regime of the French. And this was citizens seeking democracy. And I, I was told all of these wonderful things and these, these great heroes of the revolution. And, and this is what, uh, what I believed. This is, I, I was told this. 
And it wasn't until my 20s um, that I began actually turning into a, a slightly more civilized human being, that I began to start thinking for myself and to begin questioning whether everything I'd been told about the French Revolution was in fact so. And I discovered that no, it absolutely was not so. And the, the line I had been taught, which was that this was all uh, economically driven. There was financial oppression and the, and the, uh, the, the King Louis had, had sort of taken expensive luxuries for himself and that, uh, and that these, these subjects were no better than slaves. And what the French Revolution did was it came along and converted them from subjects into citizens. And, um, and that's what happened. It was poverty and deprivation that drove the French Revolution. And, uh, and it wasn't until, as I say, you know, much later, until, uh, I, as I say, I was well into my 20s, before I did reading and I started rethinking things and uh, I dismissed almost everything that I'd been taught, by the way, including religion and including faith in the Bible as God's message to mankind given to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai. Uh, I, I rethought that and I, I asked myself, I can't just go on what I've been taught here. I need to be able to understand. Is that the case or isn't it the case? And how am I going to find out? And I did. But uh, uh, most shocking to me early on was how the French Revolution emerged as something completely different, completely different from what I'd been taught. That same, uh, if you like, inequality, by the way, we hear a lot about this today. Financial inequality is the biggest problem facing the country. Look. I don't know about you, but uh, I can really live alongside people who have much more than me. I really can. It's not a big problem, really. Donald Trump doesn't bother me. Bill Gates doesn't bother me. I'm happy they're there. It's, it, it fills me with optimism. And I can live with people who have less than me, and when they are close to me and people I care for, I try to help them. Uh, I do. That's, that, that's how we live with inequality. Uh, but the idea... Um, being expressed, and I've seen this several times lately, is that, well, you don't want a French Revolution happening in America, do you? Uh, well, my friends, if anything like the French Revolution happens in America, I can assure you it will not be because of inequality. It'll be because of the aggressive pursuit of secularism, the attempt to roll out secularism as the new religion of America across the entire land. That will be what it is, and that's what it was, because uh, there were many, many places who had heavier burdens of taxation at the time uh, than France did, uh, to name two, uh, Britain and uh, Prussia. Um, there were places that had more inequality. No, the French Revolution was not this noble uh, uprising of the workers of the world, and you can understand that... Uh, that the current infatuation with a secular socialistic worldview uh, portrays, and by the way, your children are being taught this in every um, government uh, indoctrination facility. I call them gifts. Uh, whether it's elementary, middle, or high, uh, government indoctrination facilities are teaching your children exactly that. 
that the valiant and noble workers of France rose up against the economic oppression and uh, the exploitation of the higher classes. Um, it's, it's really not quite like that. As a matter of fact, uh, what we have to look at is not the economics of it and not even the people at the bottom. We actually have to look at how the elite caused it, the, the rift within the French elite, uh, the desire for a new political order that would banish the church and suppress the role of religion. That was what drove the French Revolution. And uh, it was this passionate secular faith that the institutions of government made up of noblemen and lawyers and professional men and all of these people would build a government of liberty and equality and fraternity and uh, they will make this new France. And, uh, and they, they even said, you know, that a certain amount of violence will have to be tolerated. Get that? Yeah, they did. A certain amount of violence will have to be tolerated. And so, uh, sure enough, what they radiated as a political philosophy was quickly picked up by the people in the street. And this, by the way, is not very different from what has happened over the last couple of years in America, where the philosophical mode from the top being beamed and broadcast out throughout the nation is one of inequality, of unfairness, of racial injustice. This is the obsessive preoccupation of the elite classes in America, not surprisingly, the man in the street, rich and poor, black or white, uh, men or women, everybody in the street picks up on that and finds a slot for themselves. You know, Eric Hoffer wrote a, a wonderful book called The True Believers. By the way, again, if you haven't read it, uh, part of your rabbi's uh, recommendations. This man was an autodidact, right? Somebody who never went to school. Read the true believers for an understanding of what's going on today. He said, people join the revolutionary movements because they believe it will better their circumstance. They will do okay. And sure enough, uh, that is true in the streets of America today, and it is also true in with what happened with the French Revolution. Well, of course... Uh, it was a tragedy. The thing became horrible. The deaths mounted, the torture, the, the brutality of the French Revolution was so horrible and so, so disgusting uh, that it, it, it filled all decent people with a sense of revulsion. And uh, it didn't bring a time of liberty and equality and fraternity. No. All that happened is that uh, government got strengthened, seized the reins of power and violence and brutality, and it led to a, a, war, a, a warrior period for France. Basically, the pain is still being felt. Uh, Mao Zedong was once famously asked, was it by Henry Kissinger, I think, what, it, what was his view of the French Revolution? And his answer was, still too early to tell. <laughs> that was in the, in the 70s, 60s, I think. Uh, so we see that, uh, that, that the pain... And I'm, I'm quite sure much of what afflicts France to this very day is still the lingering impact of the French Revolution. Um, I'll finish off the segment by, uh, by asking you to just reconsider. If you were taught what I was taught, if, if your kid 
are attending a, a government indoctrination facility and are being told these things. Just make it a topic of, of dinner table conversation after you've read a little bit about it. Get hold of some stuff on the French Revolution. Use your own analysis and see what a ghastly tragedy it was. And here's the best thing to do. Um, contrast the French and Russian Revolution with the English Revolution of the 17th century and the American Revolution of the 18th century. Contrast our revolution in America and the English Revolution on the one side of the fence with the French and Russian Revolution on the other. You will find the latter two were brutal, violent, horrible, and did no good whatsoever. Uh, the English Revolution and the American Revolution, uh, the, the results speak for themselves. Uh, obviously, nothing's perfect. Things aren't black and white in the real world, but you can easily contrast French and Russian revolutions with English and American revolutions. Big, big difference. Ask your children a dinner table conversation. Walk them through it, and uh, it'll become quickly apparent to everybody. The difference is Judeo-Christian values. Extirpated, hated, reviled, and evicted in the French and Russian revolutions, look at the results. Uh, English and American revolutions fought in the name of these values to reinstate the Judeo-Christian values of the Bible. The rest speaks for itself. That was the second of today's truths that just ain't so. Stay tuned. Be back with you in a minute. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lapin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. The story is Ben Carson. Ben Carson, media-wise, movement-wise, even hard politics-wise, is beginning to honestly, legitimately, approach, maybe eclipse, Donald Trump. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. And we're back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, with the third in the series of truths that just ain't so. Thanks so much for being part of the show. I really appreciate you listening. And, and you know that I'm aware of each and every download, each and every listen. Uh, so thank you. And if you are a regular, that's great. If you've gone back and listened to some of the older ones, 1 through 17, because, yes, we're on the 18th of these podcasts, uh, so much the better. I appreciate that as well. Uh, visit my website at youneedarabbi.com and make sure you uh, sign on to my weekly email, Thought Tools, please. That way I can let you know when I'm in your neighborhood and you can get a weekly spiritual strategy that you can employ in areas of your life. I call them the four Fs. Uh, the four F words, friendships, faith, finances, and family. Those are the four areas that uh, I particularly focus on. Um, the next in the sequence of truths that just ain't so is, well, <laughs> it's uh, the idea that uh, spreads around quite extensively, I think, and, and one that, gosh, you know, even if you're not particularly young, you have probably 
heard it said again and again and again. Yes, all you need is love. That's right. That's what's said. All you need is love. And the reason is that it's so seductive. It's the, uh, it's the Romeo and Juliet story, which if you'll remember, well, it didn't end all that well, did it? <laughs> and that's what they say. Listen to them. See, that's what they say. And if the Beatles say it, I mean, can it not be true? Can it be untrue? Surely not. Well, yes, of course, this is one of the most damaging and dangerous truths that just ain't so. And, um, and this is, look, I, I don't have to tell you how prevalent it is. All you've got to do is, is listen to friends of yours, like I hear friends of mine sometimes saying, when their, uh, their son or their daughter is, uh, is getting engaged. And, and, you know, you'll say, well, you know, what, what, uh, what brought it about? What sort of thing? And they'll say, well, they're, they're so in love. They're so in love. Or, uh, or you'll say, well, did you have any uh, concerns? And the parents will say, well, uh, you know, we just wanted to make sure that he really loved her. We just want to know that he really loved her. Look, my friends, uh, love is an emotion. It's an emotion. It's a very important emotion, and it's a very wonderful emotion. And we all know how when your entire being is suffused with the emotion of love, the world seems a better place, and the sun shines a little brighter, and the colors are a little bit sharper. It's wonderful. And everybody's got a smile on their face. It's wonderful. But it is an emotion. And uh, there is an old line from ancient Jewish wisdom which says that marriages that begin with love usually or often will end with law, meaning lawyers in a law court, whereas marriages that begin with law end with love. And what they're talking about is the structure of a Jewish marriage. Uh, there is no place in a Jewish marriage ceremony for uh, individually written vows of affection. Uh, there is no room in a Jewish marriage for the uh, bride and groom to look into one another's eyes meaningfully and to utter heartfelt phrases. They can do that by themselves later on. But the ceremony is, uh, is very legal. It lays out the obligations, and it's done in a very formal way. And uh, the particularly the man, the bridegroom, is asked before the ceremony, when I conduct such a ceremony, I, I do what I think every rabbi does or should be doing, which is I sit down with the, the young man before the ceremony, I go through the things he's committing to, and I say, do you really understand? In other words, this has nothing to do with whether you love her or not. It has to do with whether you want to commit yourself to her. And I've had several occasions where I've later on uh, been asked to help out with marriage problems uh, with a couple that I married. 
and I will uh, ask to have some private words with a man, and I'll walk him back, and I'll say, I'm going to use exactly the words I used six years ago when I married you. And I remind him, I said, this has nothing to do with whether you love her or not. It has to do with you, whether you are willing to commit to her. And um, he says, in most cases, they get very shocked by that, I have to tell you, uh, because they are reminded of that, although they don't hear me when I actually say it. What am I saying? What's the point I'm saying? What I'm saying is that any woman who agrees to marry a man because, oh, he loves her. I mean, I've heard girls say this. Oh, I'm so in love with him. And you know what? He really loves me. And my heart goes cold, I have to tell you, because I see a problem. Any woman who marries a man because he loves her must be willing to let him go when he tells her he has stopped loving her and instead loves the woman he met at the office. That's the deal. If love is all you need, then when love isn't there, the thing goes away. Now look, um, I don't think there's a single marriage that hasn't gone through you know, a time where uh, she thinks to herself, I, 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 di I didn't know this about him. I, I, I don't even know if I love him anymore. I don't even know if I like him. And you know what? If they're helped through that, um, a year later, everything is good again. I, I can't tell you how many couples I've been involved with uh, that have gone through a rocky period where had it just been about love, then... Uh, a counselor or a, ther a therapist would be perfectly entitled to say to them, well, do you not love each other? And one would certainly say, well, I, I don't think so. And the other one will say, well, I don't know. And then the therapist will, well, if you don't know, since you got married on the basis of all you need is love, then now's the time to end it and go find somebody you can really love. That's, um, that's the approach of all you need is love. Uh, the biblical approach is very different. It's a commitment. And a commitment doesn't depend on emotions because we all know that emotions change all the time. And when we are teaching our children the relatively low importance of emotions, right? we should all be teaching our children that we have to follow our head, not our heart. We have to follow our heads. We don't follow our heart. We're very aware of our hearts. Our feelings and emotions are important. We don't make important decisions based on the heart. And uh, one of the reasons is that everyone can relate to the idea that our emotions change. How you felt about something yesterday is not necessarily how you feel about it today. Yesterday you may have loved something. Today you may hate it. Maybe it's a food. Maybe whatever it is. Because our emotions are totally flexible in flux. They're constant movement. They're not rooted. But... Uh, but Commitments, uh, rules, they don't change. And so that, that is always one of the uh, requirements I insist gets built in to a wedding, which is that everyone understands this is a commitment, it's not an emotion. This is not out of love. This, I mean, if love is there, great, that's terrific, but it's not that relevant, to tell you the honest truth, uh, because the truth is that love and here we have to look at the Hebrew word ahav for love. Number one, its first use in scripture is not between a man and a woman. It's between a father and a son. It's between Abraham and Isaac. That gives you some idea, right? 
And it makes sense when you think about what the word actually means. Ahav in Hebrew means I give. That's right. I give. I'm a giver. Do you know what real love is? Easy way to distinguish it from, from lust, by the way. Lust is a focus of what I want, what I want to get, what I want to feel. Um, genuine love is where you are overwhelmed by a feeling of wanting to give. And guess who you feel that intuitively? The way we are created is that we feel right away that for our children. And so not surprisingly, the first use of love is Abraham to Isaac. He loves him, sure, because there is no father that doesn't want to just give to his children. That is what love is. And um, when a, uh, a young man decides to marry a beautiful, beguiling, bewitching creature called his fiance. Um, he is probably he probably does have already the capacity to feel real love and to want to give a thing, but that only grows. That expands because he ends up feeling more and more and more grateful to her as the time goes by. Uh, is the love always there? The genuine love is there, but that's neither here nor there because love is sadly not all you need. And that, my dear friends, is the third of today's truths that just ain't so. My website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over there and uh, sign up to Thought Tools. Be back with you in just a moment for the fourth and final installment of truths that just ain't so for today. Don't go away. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Don't miss Pat and Stu. Royal Club. Stayed at the end of it. It was a sacrifice block. Uh, won the game. Off of Bartolo Colon, who was 43, or 42 years old, and um, overweight, <laughs> uh, is the way I would describe Bartolo Colon. So it's kind of funny to watch this guy pitch in the World Series. He actually pitched good the first time. I think game Bartolo Colon is fatter than you are, Jeffy. Is that possible, Jeffy? Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, uh, today highlighting the fourth truth that just ain't so. And I'll tell you what this one is. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this one as well, as, as often as I have. And, and that is when people say, look, um, it's only politics, and uh, I'm quite sure we can still be the best of friends, even though we're on, we have the opposite politics. And you hear that often. Um, I've heard it from guys um, going out with girls. And um, the girl is a far-left liberal. The guy is a strong conservative, and he says two things. One I, <laughs> one I covered in the last segment. He says, we love each other. Okay, fine, we've dealt with that. But uh, the other thing he says is, he says, look, um, you know, not everything is politics. And, uh, yeah, you know, we have different political views. So what? And here's what I explain to, to the few people who actually do want to know, so what, really? And the, the answer is that if a, um, <coughs> if a husband and wife have, have different tastes in, um, in home decoration, you know what? You can work it through. 
you can work it through. Uh, in many cases, my own included, um, I say to myself, you know what, I do have different tastes, but it's less important to me than it is to her. And, um, and so we'll, we, we're going to just go with hers on that. Um, maybe you have different tastes in entertainment. Well, that's a little bit harder because it's nice uh, to be able to, to enjoy similar things. Well, in our case, um, I have a slightly higher tolerance for violence in entertainment uh, than my wife does. Um, and uh, she has a, a higher tolerance for um, long, rambling sagas with intense drama and emotional tension. Um, Gone with the Wind, she can sit through uh, several times. And uh, however many times she's sat through it is that number of times more than I've ever sat through it. Uh, I've sat through half of it or a third of it. It was just as much as I could manage in a film. But, uh, but there it is. There's enough we can share that works out just fine. Politics, my friends, is very different. I want to tell you a very basic principle. It's so important that I'm going to say it twice, uh, which is intended to give you time to grab a pen and paper and write it down. You ready? Here it comes. Politics is nothing more than the practical application of your most deeply held moral values. Okay, you got a pen? Here it comes again. <clears throat> I'm sorry, pardon the interruption. So uh, you have a pen and paper. Here it comes again. Politics is no more than the practical application of your most deeply held moral values. So let me give you an example. Um, imposing confiscatory rates of taxation on hardworking American families in order to underwrite multi-generational welfare dysfunctionality is somebody's moral value for sure. It's just not mine. But um, somebody believes that that's the good and right thing to do. When, uh, when there was a period that, and, and I think we're seeing it return, where uh, the left in America turned uh, villainy into virtue. And uh, they turned criminals into victims. Um, that was, somebody had a morality that said that the only reason people commit crime is because of poverty. There's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as people doing bad things. No, it's just a case of poverty. So therefore, it's not right to punish people who do wrong. What we should do is take away their poverty. And, uh, and so that would be another example. Bottom line is that politics is very serious. Now, you may not be that interested in politics. You may just be interested in dealing with your family, your church, your business. And, and maybe that's what you should be doing. Maybe those are the right priorities. But you should certainly not be oblivious to what is going on politically. Because when bad ideas infect a nation, bad actions follow soon after that. And the mechanism that conveys thought into action is politics. And so, uh, for instance, when the, the liberal idea 
that all good things come from government and that the private sector is only tolerable insofar as it can be adequately regulated by government, well then taxation is what follows. That's a bad idea. But what follows is high levels of taxation very quickly because politics is what allows people to transition ideas into actions. And that's why I say that politics is nothing more than the practical application of deeply held moral values. And so when you see deeply held moral values permeating the culture, and they're bad values, you've got to be alarmed. You've got to be aware that it's not going to be long before those values are turned into law. And politics is just how that is done. You know that you watched the, the gradual adoption of bad ideas when it came to gender and sex. Men and women are the same. Therefore, marriage is the same. It doesn't take long. Once a bad idea spreads, particularly in a democratic society, when a bad idea spreads, it doesn't take long for the mechanism of politics to turn it from a bad idea into bad laws. And it hasn't stopped. Uh, a few weeks ago in the show right here on The Blaze, I spoke about transgenderism. And uh, since the time that you heard that show, it's got a whole lot worse. The kind of things that are now being allowed under sensitivity to transgenders um, are things that utterly ride roughshod over what you would have thought would be the rights to privacy of women. But no, all of that has changed. And the, the ludicrousness of it is a warning sign of just how perilous this can all become. When an award was recently given to this wonderful heroic woman who happens to actually be a man who's transgendered, uh, how funny that is that so devoted are the believers in these wrong moral ideas that they even insist that the best woman is actually a man. And you'd think that there'd be an internal contradiction and that that would be an intolerable thing to even come up with. But it's all evidence of the power of politics and the ability it has to transform bad thinking and bad ideas into very bad legislation. And so how are our lives impacted by this? Well, by this idea, apart from anything else, that yes, you know, people of, of different politics can still be the very best of friends or even married to one another. All I can say is that if you're in a marriage where your wife or your spouse, your husband are on the opposite political side from you, don't vote. Why waste time? You just cancel each other's out. The two of you should stay home and get a little extra time together. Maybe you can <laughs> work on that marriage. But uh, no, I'm serious. Uh, being on the opposite sides in politics for a marriage is hard. It is an added challenge. And um, it, it, it does mean that there is an obstacle in a perfect union there because something I've touched on also in a previous uh, show a few weeks ago is that a large part of our identity is our moral commitment. 
And I explained then that uh, if your spouse suddenly decided to become a criminal, uh, you'd, you'd have trouble with that. You'd, you'd ask yourself who you married to. And that's what happens when, um, when morality changes in, in dramatic ways. It really throws into question identity. Well, similarly here, it may not be different. You may have married somebody, or maybe your friend is, uh, you just became a friend with this person, and you really are looking forward to the friendship. But there's only this one little snag, and you're both on opposite ends of the political spectrum. It doesn't mean you can't be polite to each other. It doesn't necessarily even mean you can't work together. Uh, it does mean you are uh, blocked from a very close friendship, and you're blocked also from trust, because the whole concept of trust differs on opposite sides of the moral spectrum. And today, America's moral spectrum is separated uh, primarily on a religious basis. What separates left and right in America today at its very core? Not economics, not race, not gender, no. What separates uh, the two sides on either side of the canyon that cuts through American culture at the moment, it's a belief that Judeo-Christian values are a primitive obstruction to progress on the left, or Judeo-Christian values are vital for our nation's survival on the right. And there are variations within that spectrum. But uh, the idea that um, we have major differences of, of view or belief or outlook, but we're still the best of friends or we're still wonderfully married, uh, not so simple. That's the final for today of truths that just ain't so. My website, youneedarabbi.com. Look forward to welcoming you there. Take a look at uh, my book, Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money. Take a look and read about the income abundance set. And be sure to not only catch up with past podcasts you may not have heard, but to be tuned for the next one when we're together again in one week from now. Until then, I wish you good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.